You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Happy holidays to everybody out there. And while you guys are getting ready for the holidays, a reminder about some holiday shopping you can do with the Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage there. Once you do that, you'll be directed to Amazon and you can do all your Christmas shopping there. Anything that you buy from Amazon.com through our website, HazardGround.com, we get a portion of the proceeds. We donate those right back to the incredible charities and organizations that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So doing your holiday shopping through HazardGround.com and Amazon.com is a great way to help out veterans and veterans organizations all throughout America. Also, if you're looking for a particular kind of gift for that member in your family, don't forget about Combat Flip-Flops. Go to their website, CombatFlipFlops.com, and enter the code HAZARD1, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Again, CombatFlipFlops.com and the code HAZARD1. Combat Flip-Flops, an organization that was started by veterans that were featured right here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Also, one of our sponsors, Knife Country USA. You can click on their website right on our sponsors page on HazardGround.com. Enter the code HAZARD1 and you will get a 10% discount on the entire order from Knife Country USA, a fantastic company, another one of the companies featured here on the Hazard Ground. So we appreciate you guys supporting all of the companies that support us. And as always, we appreciate you guys listening to the Hazard Ground. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And with all that said, now let's get to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired E-5 from the United States Army who is also an EOD technician. He spent 18 months in Vietnam. He is a lawyer who spent 23 years as a public defender and even did a counter-drug tour in Afghanistan as a civilian. He has also wrote a book called This Is What Hell Looks Like about his experience in Vietnam. He is Stu Steinberg here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Stu, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right, well, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Just an incredible story of, of how long you spent in Vietnam and survived. But uh, we start always by asking how people got in the military. Now, this is Vietnam, so did you volunteer or were you drafted? No, I, uh, I enlisted. Uh, but uh, the truth is uh, the draft board was on my ass because uh, I had flunked out of college. Oh really? Did it, I didn't? I didn't even, was that like yeah, something they specifically targeted? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, you know, because I had a student deferment, and um, you know, the school um, uh, that I was in, Eastern New Mexico University, um, apparently, you know, notified my draft board, uh, and uh, you know, I uh, left New Mexico. I think it was in May of '66, uh, and I think. I got a draft notice in either late June or early July of 1966. And uh, I, I knew I didn't want to get drafted because in 1966, you know, they would draft all these people and then uh, they would line you up and tell you to count off by fours. And then they said, okay, everyone who's a four, you're in the Marines. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I knew I didn't want to be in the Marines. Um I think I probably chose the Army because my dad had been in the Army during World War II. He was an infantry company commander. And, you know, uh, so um, on uh, July the 27th, uh, 
1966, uh, one of my buddies and I uh, went into D.C., uh, where the drinking age at that time was 18, and we got staggeringly drunk, uh, woke up the next morning, uh, passed out in my car, and uh, uh, drove down to Alexandria uh, to get some breakfast. And uh, when I looked out the window uh, of the restaurant we were in, all the recruiting offices uh, were right across the street. So uh, we had our breakfast and uh, walked across the street and uh, enlisted in the Army. And um, uh, that was on July 28, 1966. And uh, we actually left <clears throat> for the... Uh, 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 the induction center uh, that night uh, down in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, uh, by the next morning, we were on our way to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. That's unreal. Like, uh, I'm trying to listen. We all do silly things sometimes when we've had too much to drink, but that was a life altering decision uh, with a hangover. Well, I guess that's true, but, um, you know, I sort of felt. You know, it was uh, it was it was kind of my duty, I guess. Um, I uh, um, I certainly had. I to be honest, uh, I didn't know that much at that time about the war in Vietnam. You know, despite the fact that uh, there had been a huge buildup by 1966. Uh, but to tell you the truth, you know, I couldn't have shown you where Vietnam was on a map, and I I, I really didn't become fully aware, you know, of uh, what was going on in Vietnam until I got the basic training where, you know, most of my drill instructors um, had already been to Vietnam and back. Um, uh, a couple of them had been in the 173rd Airborne Brigade, uh, which I eventually ended up uh, on operations with uh, uh, during my uh, first uh, year uh, in Vietnam. So, um, yeah, you know, even, you know, if I hadn't gotten drunk the night before, I would have still ended up enlisting because, like I said, I just didn't want to get drafted. Well, and there's, there's some logic to that. We've had a couple of people who have both been drafted and, uh, and both chose to enlist just uh, simply, as you said, with a chance of kind of dictating their own career path a little bit or, or likelihood of doing X, Y, and Z as opposed to at the needs of the Army, needs of the government, whatever it may be. Um, so you go off to yeah. basic training. Do you have this uh, moment at basic training where you're like, wow, this was a bad idea? No. I never did. In fact, um, I really, uh, well, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, when my buddy and I got to Fort Jackson, um, they called us out uh, because it turned out that during the physical at the induction center, they had discovered that my buddy had a uh, condition um, that uh, precluded him from serving. However, um, you know, they told him that um, there was a minor surgical procedure he could undergo if he wanted to stay in, and uh, and uh, he chose not to do that. And so they discharged him. And then they told me, because we had enlisted under the buddy program, well, I could get out too. And I said, well, I'm already here, so what the hell. Now, what ended up happening was they were full at Fort Jackson. So they put me in the car and drove me over the border into Georgia and took me to Fort Gordon. Wow. And I ended up in a, I ended up in a basic training company. This is, this is a riot. I was the only regular army guy. In other words, the only enlistee in this company. 
everyone else uh, was a member of a, 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 a well, either an Army Reserve or National Guard unit from Wisconsin. And, you know, these are all guys. I mean, some of them were, uh, there was one guy at least who was a lawyer. There was another guy who was a, a big-time executive in a union. And, uh, you know, they had joined the Guard and the Reserves as a way, they believed, of avoiding going to Vietnam. Well, I got news for you. They were an infantry unit. So uh, they were all going to Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and because I was the only RA, uh, the the uh, the command staff, you know, of, of my company, uh, just thought I was the bee's knees, uh, and uh, I ended up being, uh, you know, the acting Jack, uh, you know, in my company, um, you know, where I wore these uh, sergeant stripes on a uh, a a thing that was, you know, on my arm. Right, like and, a sleeve uh, that wraps yeah, around really, your arm. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, I really ate it up. I, I feel like I really excelled, you know, especially in, you know, things like, you know, things like the low crawl and uh, uh, the uh, the ladder thing that you went across hand by hand over hand, um, and uh, I just, I just really ate it up. You know, at one point we had. Uh, you know, guard mount, and, you know, you were inspected by the brigade commander and whatnot, and I was chosen, you know, uh, the best soldier in that deal. So while everyone else was uh, guarding a, uh, a pile of tires or something, uh, you know, I uh, 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 drove around with the brigade commander. I think I got a $25 savings bond, and, <laughs> yeah, so, you know. It was, it was pretty cool. I, I really enjoyed basic. I really and so did your buddy who had the medical exemption, he end up getting out or no? Yeah, he got out. He got out. And so he never had to go over? No, he never, yeah. He was, uh, you know, 4F. Wow, that's, a, that's, that's crazy. All right, so you finish basic yeah, training. Yeah, he had a pylon idle cyst. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. All right, so you finished. Should have been surgically repaired. Yeah, uh, I suppose, right? But uh, they gave him the option, right? Yeah, and he chose instead. Well, I've thought about it now. I don't think I want to do this. And you got out. Well, uh, to each their own, as they say. So uh, you finish basic training, you head to off to AIT. Um, how quickly does everything happen, and how quickly well, do you find out? I, I actually, I, I, I actually didn't go to AIT. Oh, really? When. Uh, my buddy and I enlisted. We let the recruiter saw us a complete line of bullshit. Um, you know, we really didn't know what we wanted to do, and this guy convinced us uh, that we should go into the missile field. You know, we would learn electronics and all kinds of cool shit that, you know, would, uh, you know, serve us uh, in civilian life. And, of course, it just turned out to be BS. I ended up at a Knight Hercules missile site that was out in the middle of nowhere in the Everglades. And I mean in the Everglades. <laughs> and, in fact, this missile site was actually built on uh, in an area that had been a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. Really? And, uh, yeah, and this job turned out to just be this complete bullshit. I mean, basically, 
was a Knight Hercules missile crewman, 16B or something like that. You know, your main job was, uh, you know, push the missiles out of the silo, clean them with acetylene or, you know, whatever, and, uh, you know, check them out and then push them back in. And, uh, you know, we did things like uh, pulled weeds around the berm of our battery and uh, a lot of guard duty. Um, but the worst part of it was that there were a lot of people in this unit, uh, largely from deep south states like, you know, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and there were a bunch of racist anti-Semitic swine. And uh, the company commander and the first sergeant uh, just kind of let these people do, you know, what they did, uh, which was fuck a lot of people over. And one of these guys, in fact, ran a loan sharking operation, which the command knew about, where they would loan money to unsuspecting privates and PFCs and then charge them, you know, interest, you know, left them broke, basically, after they would get paid. So... <clears throat> When I got close to having a year in, um, I, I knew I had to get out of there. So um, I, uh, I took the bus into Homestead Air Force Base, which was kind of where our main support was, and went to see the uh, career counselor. So, you know, I told him, well, you know, I, I got to do something else, man. I want to do something that means something. And he said, well, what would you think about going into explosive ordnance disposal? And I said, what's that? So he said, well, that's the bomb squad. And then I said, well, why the hell would I want to do that? <laughs> and he said, well, if you do, if you do, you'll get another $55 a month in hazardous duty pay, which isn't taxable. Now, at that time, I was a PFC making $90 a month. So 55 bucks sounded like a really good deal to me. Plus, yeah. I got a $1,000 reenlistment bonus. And so the day I had one year in, you know, July 27, uh, 1967, I re-enlisted, and uh, I was on my way to the first phase of EOD school at Fort McClellan, like, uh, two days later. Wow. Now, did you know, uh, did, did they give you any sense of the long-term career uh, trajectory on that? Like, did they tell you anything about Vietnam, and you'd likely be going as soon as you're done, or did, did that not even come no. up? In... Yeah, my, my memory is Vietnam never came up, but... You know, by that time, in 1967, of course, um, you know, I did know, you know, about Vietnam. I knew what was going on. I read the papers. I watched the news. And I knew that, you know, the situation there was uh, fairly uh, tense. And, uh, you know, by then, of course, um, you know, people who kept abreast of things knew about things like the Battle of the Eotrain Valley. Um and, uh, you know, the battles at LZ right? And uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, by then I knew, you know, that, you know, I was going to be in an MOS that would likely, you know, take me to Vietnam. Um, at that point, I wasn't thinking I'm going to volunteer for Vietnam, but that is eventually what I did. So, All right. So, I mean, it, it's, EOD schooling is, is extensive. It's long. So when do you actually get to Vietnam? Yeah. Uh, I actually, I got to Vietnam uh, on September the 4th, 1968. I uh, graduated from EOD school in, in early January. 
1968. Um, the school uh, ran from July of 68. Uh, it began at Fort McClellan, where you did chemical and biological weapon systems. I think that was about three weeks. And then my memory is I had a leave of maybe 10 days. Um, so I ended up then at the EOD school, the basic school, which at that time was at Indian Head, Maryland, with the Naval Ordnance Station. Yep. And, uh, and uh, of course, now everything is down at Eglin Air Force Base. Um, and uh, when I graduated, um, me and one of the other guys I'd gone through school with, who me and I had become really good friends, we both came down on orders for Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. So what happens when you get there? Well, uh, at that time, Dugway was where we stored uh, the vast majority of our chemical and biological weapon systems. And the team that I was on there, one of our major jobs was going through these storage areas and checking, looking for leakers. And the primary weapon uh, that we had to deal with that was leaking was 114 it was a, a, a rocket, a relatively long rocket, you know, six or seven feet long, uh, that contained VX nerve gas, sarin. Yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, and what we would do is we would collect the leakers, and we would transport them to our demo area, um, and we would fill the pit with tires, and then uh, <clears throat> lay out explosive charges and uh, white phosphorus grenades, thermite packs, and then drench the area with, you know, hundreds of gallons of jet fuel and set it off. And, uh, you know, it would burn. The rounds would uh, detonate, mostly. And, uh, of course, the nerve gas would pretty much be burned out. And then a few days later, after the pit had cooled down, we would have to go through the pit and look for rounds that either hadn't detonated or where the bursters... Uh, uh, which I can't remember if the bursters had TNT or RDX. Uh, the bursters would split open, the fire would melt the explosives, which then formed a slag that would reharden. And uh, once it was in that condition, it was really, really dangerous. I mean, you know, you could set off the slag just by stepping on it or... Uh, moving it wrong or whatever. And uh, during one of these operations, uh, uh, my teammate and I, actually the guy who I had gone through school with, and we got sent out there together. We were in the pit, and then I went back to our rig to cut charges, and all of a sudden I heard this explosion. And a piece of slag had detonated, or one of the bursters had detonated something, and Tom ended up getting hit in the thigh uh, with a fairly large piece of shrapnel and um and he had to be medevaced out um and uh and then um uh you know one of our other jobs was uh working on new ordnance systems like for instance i think it was called the xm54 it was a uh, a bounding mine like a, an anti-tank mine except that it was filled with white phosphorus and uh, when they first started testing these things, there were a lot of duds. So 
you know, one of our jobs in a case like that would be to, you know, go in and destroy the dead and that kind of thing. Um, so that, that's kind of what we did there. Did you enjoy that? Or was it, was it, I mean, what was your reaction to having to do that? I mean, obviously well, you're, you're still you know, not in Vietnam yet. To tell you the truth, no, it, it was actually, it was pretty boring. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then on, uh, you know, March the 13th in 1968, um, we, uh, there was a nerve gas accident, um, an F4 that was flying a new type of dispenser system, uh, took off, uh, uh flew out, uh, uh, away from Dugway, made a turn and, in coming back uh, uh, to try to get back over Dugway, where they were going to dispense this weapon in an area where they had a bunch of animals, um, sheep, dogs, and that kind of stuff, uh, to see how the system worked and whatnot, and it malfunctioned. So it ended up dumping a ton of BX, sarin, nerve gas, on a sheep ranch. Oh, man. And uh, it killed everything. If it walked, crawled, flew, whatever, they were dead. Everything was dead. And what was amazing was, and this was on a Thursday, for some reason, uh, the herders who were either, they were all Albanians or Armenians or something, I don't know. Thursday was their day off. So all of the herders were not there. They were like in the town of Tuella, you know, I don't know, at a bar or whatever. And, uh, like, it killed all of the horses, their dogs, 7,000 sheep. And uh, like I said, everything that walked, crawled, or flew uh, was dead. Birds, snakes. Uh, and you know how you hear that, you know, cockroaches can survive a nuclear blast? Yeah. Well, they can't survive nerve gas. They can't survive nerve gas because they have a central nervous system. Hmm. So we ended, we ended up basically... Uh, cleaning up this mess by <clears throat> having a huge pit done. We scraped everything into the pit, uh, set it up like we did in our demo area at Dugway, lots of tires, lots of explosives, like phosphorus and thermite, uh, tied it all together with jet cord, dumped a couple thousand gallons of jet fuel in there and set it off. And after the pit had basically burned itself out, they covered it up, put a fence around it, Paid the owners a lot of money, and uh, uh, and that was kind of the end of it. And we were debriefed by we were debriefed by people from the Department of Defense, and of course we're told we couldn't talk about what had happened, and uh, you know everything was you know hush hush. And of course they covered this up for many many years. Yeah, um, <laughs> there used to be a there used. There used to be an investigative journalist with the Washington Post named Jack Anderson. And every year on the anniversary, Jack Anderson would have write a column about what had happened and how they were covering it up and yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And it turned out when I was doing my research for my book, what I discovered was this land was owned by the family of uh, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch. And, uh, so after we got done with this cleanup, which took, you know, a couple of weeks, I think, uh, again, like when I enlisted, 
uh, four of us, uh, lower-ranking guys, D4s and uh, E5s, um, went down to the enlisted men's club and got really, really hammered. <laughs> and the next morning, the next morning, three of us went to personnel and volunteered for Vietnam. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I I blithely thought that, well, you know, if I go to Vietnam, at least, uh, you know, you can hear the enemy coming, you know, which, of course, turned out to be bullshit. But it, it seemed like a better option than staying at Dugway. I mean... And this place was a nightmare. Well, that's, uh, you know, some people might tell you you probably should stop drinking. You know, at least they're weird decisions for you somewhere down the road. But uh, Yeah, well, <laughs> I eventually did. I eventually, <laughs> yeah, I eventually did stop drinking. Okay, well, uh, good for you from that standpoint. All right, so you're heading to Vietnam. Do you know what you're doing, where you're going, everything else? Well, um, I, I didn't know which unit I was going to go to when I went. Uh and, uh, uh, but I knew I would end up, you know, on the nine man EOD team, uh, 10th person being the clerk. And, um, uh, we landed at Benoit Air Base. Um, we flew in on, uh, uh, Flying Tiger. And, uh, what's really weird is my wife at that time was a stewardess for Flying Tiger. And the route that we took was the route that she flew. And she might well have been on that same plane with me. Oh, really? Uh, and my buddy Tom, yeah, and my buddy Tom and I uh, went together. Uh, we landed at Benoit, and they trucked us over to the main Army base at Long Bay. And, you know, everybody was in line. And then they called me and Tom out because there was someone there uh, from our control team uh, uh, who was going to get us to our assignments. All right. So when uh, you get placed there, how quickly do you find out exactly what your mission? I mean, EOD is sort of reactionary in, in its nature, right? That, like, like, as soon as we hooked up with the clerk from control, um, I knew that I would be going to the 184th Ordnance Battalion, uh, which had an EOD section, um, and that they were in the Central Islands in a place called Quignon. And Tom went to the 191st Ordnance Battalion at Cameron Bay. Uh, they also had an EOD section. And eventually, you know, I ended up on a Chinook, and Tom ended up on a C-130, and off we went. So where do you end up, um, and how quickly do you, you get into combat? Well, I, you know, before we even get into that, did you know you were going to be there for 18 months ahead of time, or is that just a product of the, uh, the time? No, no, no. You know, I, you know, I uh, enlisted... I mean, you know, by volunteering, I mean, at that time in the Army, typical tour was a year. Right. And when I had about, when I had about uh, 10 months in, uh, <clears throat> they sent me to a different team. I went to the 25th Ordnance Detachment, the EOD, uh, which was in uh, up in the mountains in the Central Islands in a place called Han K. And at that time, Han K was the main base camp at the 4th Infantry Division. And there were elements of the 173rd Airborne Brigade there. And um, right after I went to the 25th, I decided to extend my tour by another six months. And that's how I ended up being there for 18 months. Okay, gotcha. Um, but back to the, the question I asked a moment ago about, uh, you know, was everything just reactionary in nature? Were you trying to be proactive and diffuse minds and things of that nature? Or, 
kind of what was the nature of the day-to-day work? Well, the day-to-day work was, you know, calls came in to the team and, uh, you know, two people would go out on the call and it could be anything from, oh, you know, going down to the MP shack and uh, picking up grenades and ammunition they had taken off of people they had arrested for one thing or another. Um, or, you know, we might get called out to um, uh, one of the bases somewhere, you know, in the uh, two-core tactical zone, uh, maybe had been mortared the night before and they, they would either be duds or there would be tail fins sticking up and they didn't know whether it was a dud or just the tail fins. And so we would go out and determine what the deal was. And, you know, if it was an actual dud, you know, we would, we would blow it in place and, you know, and at, at the same time, uh, the 184th, um, we had two, two man onsite teams. Um, uh, one, one two man team was, uh, uh, based at landing zone English, um, near a village called Bongson. And this was the main base camp for the 2nd Battalion of the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And then our second on-site team was uh, down south of Quignan at a place called Tuliwa, where we were supporting the 3rd and 4th Battalions of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Um, and in both of those locations, we spent two weeks on-site, uh, uh, mostly, you know, being on operations, uh, with these infantry units when they would run into booby traps or uh, uh, anti-tank mines or uh, they would go into an area for an assessment after an airstrike. And whenever there was an airstrike and, you know, a number of bombs were dropped anywhere from 250 to 2,000 pounders, there were going to be duds. So what would happen is is these units, particularly the long-range recon guys and Green Berets, MACB advisory teams, would run into these duds, and then they would call us, and we could get choppered into wherever it was, you know, humped to the site, you know, assess the situation, blow the device, and all ass. <laughs> In doing all this every single day, you know, the, the it's not really a joke, but I guess that you know the running punchline, if you will, about EOD guys is do they have all their fingers, right? And so. You know, I, I asked that or I prefaced that just because, you know, the level of uncertainty and danger in what you do, uh, whether it's in practice or in, in actuality, is, is uh, the results of it could be disastrous. So did any of that ever creep into your mind as you're doing all these missions on a day-to-day nope. basis? No, I never, as far as I remember, I never, I never really thought about the inherent danger of what I was doing. And I think Largely, it was the result of we were really well-trained. Um, we believed in our mission. We were all volunteers. And, um, you know, every day you, you just you did your job. Um, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I, I, I don't remember, you know, even after I got hurt uh, uh, in May of 69, um, after that event, I didn't, you know, start thinking, oh, wow, this is fucked up. <laughs> you know, I could have gotten killed. You know, I could have gotten killed. I could have gotten really seriously hurt. Um, and uh, it just, I don't know, it just never never dawned on you. At least not to me. I, I do want to talk about May 69, but let me ask you one more question first. Um, did, you, sure. ha- did you ever, ever 
have any other combat engagements that weren't EOD related? Well, you know, sometimes, you know, in going out on an EOD mission, you know, you ended up in direct contact with the enemy, either the Viet Cong or the NBA. Um, you know, you were in firefights. Uh, right. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, when we flew in uh, for some operation or another, you went in under fire. And sometimes when you were going out, you were under fire. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess that's what you're getting at. Did you ever, did you lose any teammates while you were there? No. Okay. Um, uh, the 184th had lost a guy just before I got there. Um, he was killed in the Marine uh, ammo dump uh, at Dongha uh, that had gotten blown up uh, during the, uh, the Tet Offensive in 1968, you know, the big Tet that everyone talks about. Right. And uh, they were cleaning up this dump, and uh, uh, they think that Lou stepped on either a, 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 an orange 40-millimeter grenade warhead um, or something uh, from a Kofram round. Uh, which were artillery projectiles that opened up and dropped all these little bomblets all over the place. And these these devices had any disturbance and any lift features, and uh, that's what they think happened to Lou. You know, it turned out that uh, the last team I was on, the 287, uh, which was up in Northern I-4, uh, about, I don't know, 40, 50 clicks from the DMZ, was the only team in Vietnam that never lost an ant. I mean, really? you know, we had, uh, yeah, we had one guy that lost uh, part of one of his legs when he stepped on a mini personnel line. Uh, but the 287th was the only team that never had a man killed. So, and that was amazing since that team was at Hamburger Hill. That team was at the Siege of Firebase Ripcord. Uh, you know, so, yeah. But, you know, during my 18 months, you know, we did lose people, you know, from other teams. And uh, and it always, you know, it was always um, really sad and really emotional because even if you didn't know this person, um, you know, you know, I think at the max, I think there were 14 teams in Vietnam uh, and in the control unit. So you're talking about, you know, maybe 150 guys in the whole country. So, you know, when a team lost someone, um, you know, it was it was really it was very personal, and it was very emotional. Um, I was uh, TDY in the Delta uh, to the 44th EOD, which was at the 25th Infantry Division's main base at Kuchi, and um, I was there in November and December of '68, and I left there on New Year's Eve, '68. So December 31st, and uh, that night I landed in Saigon, and uh, the guys at the 170th uh, Ordnance Detachment picked me up, took me back to their unit, um, spend the night, and I was going to fly out to Quinyon the next day. And that night, the CO of the unit, um, uh, Captain Cecilia, uh, and another member of the unit went on a call and got caught in a gun battle. Uh, between uh, Vietnamese 
military police in the Viet Cong, and uh, and Captain Cecilia was accidentally killed. And uh, it was really, really an emotional uh, deal, you know, being there for the memorial. Um, Yeah, so. What made it so emotional in particular? Well, first of all, he was a really cool guy. And secondly, the men in his unit loved him. Um, And like I said, you know, there were so few of us in Vietnam that, you know, when there was a loss, you know, whether someone was killed or wounded bad enough to have to get medevac, it was it was a very personal thing. You know, maybe, you know, on those occasions, you did think a little bit about, wow, that could happen to me, um, you know, and eventually it did. All right, so what happened in uh, 1969 to you? I know you, you've been injured a, a couple of times. Uh, give me the circumstances and events. Well, during the post-Tet Offensive of 1969, which began in uh, on February the 23rd, 1969, uh, the, the 184th Ordnance Battalion had an ammo dump. It was the second biggest dump in Vietnam. And I think at that time, you know, at least... Uh, what I gleaned from the research I did for my book, where I was able to recover a lot of reports and after-action stuff, um, I think they had about 19,000 tons of ordnance. Everything from, you know, M16 ammo to the biggest artillery rounds that we had, the 8-inch round and the 175-millimeter round. So on February the 23rd, March 10th and 11th, and March the 23rd, uh, Viet Cong sappers got into the dump and blew it the fuck up. And despite ever-increasing security, and I'm talking more guard towers, roving patrols with dogs, uh, long-range recon ambushes, Korean Marine ambushes, they never saw anybody. They got in and out of the dump without ever being detected. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so when the dump went up the first time, uh, well, all three times, basically, we were inside the dump um, as ammunition, you know, uh, whole pads of all kinds of ordnance, you know, everything from, like I said, small arms to huge artillery projectiles were mass detonating. And how it was that, you know, we managed to, get through those three attacks without having a man wounded was just, well, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. Now, the Ordnance Battalion did lose three guys during the third attack, um, a captain and two enlisted men who went into a pad of eight-inch projectiles, which are really, really big bullets. Um, and uh, that had mass detonated uh, while they were there. Uh, they were basically vaporized. Um, and one of the sicker aspects of this fucking sick demanded war uh, was that, uh, you know, every week the Army Times would publish a list of all of the names of the men who were killed in action during the prior week. When that list came out after Captain Allen and his two enlisted guys were killed, they were actually listed as missing in action, presumed dead. 
Was that because they couldn't find any remains? Well, they actually did find Captain Allen's, I think, his ring finger, and it had his Citadel ring on it. That's the only thing they found. I mean, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of eight-inch rounds that went off in a mass detonation. Wow. That's just a... The visual so, is, is unreal, you know? So, um, what happened uh, during the cleanup, and of course... We start cleaning it up after the first attack, and then fucking, you know, three weeks later, you know, it gets hit again and pretty much wipes out all the work we'd already done. And then we start cleaning it up again, and then two weeks after that, they hit it again, and that wiped out all the work we had done. So, fortunately, after the March 23rd attack, uh, they didn't hit it again, and so we spent the next uh, three, almost four months uh, cleaning up uh, this mess. And a lot of what we did was um, we would collect up um, all of these damaged uh, artillery and mortar rounds largely and truck them to our demo area, which was a couple of miles down the road, and uh, and, and we would blow this shit up. And then uh, the, the biggest uh, uh, problem that we had was with light phosphorus rounds. Uh, yeah. mostly 81-millimeter mortar rounds and 105-millimeter artillery projectiles. And um, a lot of them were leaking. And, of course, you know, you probably know, you, know, you get white phosphorus on you, and it's going to burn a hole right through you. Yep. The only thing that stops it is, you know, water or dirt, whatever. So uh, in order to clean up the white phosphorus, um, we had these crates built. Um, they were, you know, giant wooden boxes, uh, mostly made of two by sixes, I think, you know, probably, uh, you know, five by five around the base and four or five feet tall. And then the inside was lined with plastic and, uh, you know, like, I don't know, you know, tarps or something. And we would fill up the boxes with water. And then we would pick up by hand these leaking white phosphorus rounds um, or even those that weren't leaking and put them in these boxes filled with water. Um, and uh, you, had to, you wore these kind of gloves uh, that allowed you to work with this stuff without getting burned. And then we would eventually truck all the white phosphorus to our demo area and uh, set it off. And, uh, man, they made a hell of an explosion. Um so eventually, uh, there was so much of this ordinance uh, that had been damaged, you know, mostly high explosive stuff. Um, but none of it was fused, uh, except for the 81 millimeter mortar rounds. Um, and I'll get to that when I talk about how I got hurt. Um, we would, you know, fill these boxes, not the ones we used for white phosphorus, but just regular. Uh, we'd fill these boxes with rounds. And then eventually there would be a huge convoy and we would head south of Quignan about, I'm thinking maybe about 90 miles uh, to the port uh, of Tuiwa. And we had an on-site team there. And like I said earlier, uh, 3rd and 4th Battalions of the 173rd were based there. Uh, there was a Special Forces uh, B team there, um, a lot of MACB activity. And we would load these boxes on Navy barges. And uh, 
truck them out into the South China Sea and dump all this bad ordinance into the South China Sea. My guess is today uh, those rounds have been rusted through, uh, leaked out their contents, and there's probably a huge area in the South China Sea that's just completely dead from all this ordinance we dumped there. It's just kind wow. of one of those things you didn't think about in terms of its effect on the environment. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, and all the explosions that you've talked about in since we've been talking, in the back of my head I'm going, yeah, that probably doesn't work that way if they try that in 2018. Like, <laughs> we're not just blowing things up, covering with, with dirt and moving on about our lives. It doesn't work that easy anymore. Yeah, EOD now is a lot different than we were in, you know. Um, like I said, you know, we have a nine-man team, 10th man being the clerk. Now EOD is like the regular army. You know, they have companies, battalions, uh, groups, and, uh, um, you know, there's, I think, maybe 60 men and women in the company. Yeah, well, um, since 9-11 happened, they've had a much bigger need for all that stuff. Um you know, roadside yeah. bombs yeah. and everything else have changed the dynamics very quickly exactly. of the need yeah. for EOD. Uh, those are some of the busiest damn guys in Iraq. I mean, they just, they was always, literally, there were times you could discover an IED on the road, and we did, and we called them for EOD. We'd be waiting there for two or three hours. Not because they were taking their time, because they were on another mission already. You know, and it's, you, yeah. can't, you can't put a set time on how, how long it takes to defuse a bomb. You have to do it the right way, and sometimes that That's takes, right. you know, some analytics yeah. and some study and everything else, and checking and double-checking to make sure... The guy trying to detonate the bomb doesn't set off the bomb because you still have bad things happening. Yeah. So, yeah, that, definitely different. But let's get back to uh, when, when you got injured. So anyway, uh, it was May the 10th, 1969, and my teammate and I, my, my good buddy Roger McCormick, um, who I just uh, saw again this year at our convention, and he came home with my wife and I and uh, spent a few days here with us in Oregon. Um, and we were hoping to be able to get him out on a horse, but the weather didn't uh, uh, cooperate. Uh, Roger and I were uh, we were like right at the tail end of finishing the cleanup. So one of our jobs that day was to go through every pad that we were assigned to and look for any bad or damaged ordinance, um, maybe something you know in the dirt uh, that had. Uh, become evident after a rain or something. So we went into this pad of eight inch artillery projectiles. And, uh, you know, the, the stacks of these eight inch rounds were, uh, I think too high. Um, so you're probably talking about, uh, you know, uh, a stack of these eight inch rounds uh, would be, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe four or five feet tall. And they were, you know, stacked too high. And I, I just happened to look up and I saw the tail fins of an 81 millimeter mortar round sticking out of one of these stacks of eight inch rounds. And what I saw were the tail fins. So I climbed up the stack and I looked in there and sure enough, uh, there was an entire round in there. Oh, at that time, the 81 millimeter mortar rounds were came fused, and they were fused with what was called the M524 fuse. This is a really dangerous fuse. Um, the uh, firing pin was separated from the detonator 
by something called a bore riding pin. And you may know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's sort of wrapped around, it wrapped around the fuse and then the tail end of it went into the fuse and blocked the firing pin from the detonator. So what happened in the field was the mortar guys would pull out the bore riding pin, which then left the round fully armed. Um, if you had slammed it on the ground, nose first, you would have blown your ass up. And uh, we couldn't tell when when I first looked in there whether or not the bore riding pin was gone because uh, well, you just couldn't see that well. So what we ended up doing was is um, I had it roll a combo wire in the Jeep or a three-quarter ton truck, you know, I don't know, you know, like a 500-foot long roll of combo wire. So I tied one end of it to the tail fins, and Roger and I rolled it out, uh, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred feet or so, and got behind the rig and uh, and jerked around loose. And, you know, we actually could hear the, the pads had concrete uh, floors. And we actually heard the round, you know, hit the concrete floor, bounce around a few times, and then, you know, it didn't go off. Oh, you must so have been, you must have been literally time. sweating in those moments. Hearing that round clank well, around. Oh, well, I don't think so. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> I would have been. I, I, we just we were just doing our job, and when it didn't go off, uh, we walked back up there, and that's when we discovered that not only the bore riding pin was missing, but the nose plunger was bashed down into the fuse, which meant that more than likely, the firing pin was impinged in the detonator, and you knew that if you handled it wrong and the firing pin dislodged from the detonator, that would set the round off and you'd be blown to pieces. So right about that time, my CO and one of our NCOs, you know, I called them on the radio. And he came up and, uh, and Captain Lawrence uh, asked me, well, what do you think we ought to do? And I said, well, you know, the rendering safe procedure for this thing is to blow it in place. And even if we sandbag it, I mean, you, you can't be blowing shit up in the middle of a pad of these huge artillery projectiles. Um, and uh, I said, I think I should sandbag it in the back of the three-quarter ton. Uh, we had a small demo area inside the dump. And I said, I'll drive it down the road to the demo area and blow it up. So I... Uh, you know, on the three-quarter ton, they have, you know, pretty big tires. And so what I did was is I took the spare tire and I propped it up against the back of the driver's seat. Um, you know, the back of the, behind the seat, you know, the back of the truck were like these wooden slats and, you know, canvas. And, uh, and then I laid out a row of sandbags, uh, picked around up. It didn't go off, thank God put it on the sandbags and sandbagged it again, you know, sandbags on top of the round to hold it in place. And uh, I backed out of the pad. <clears throat> I got about 50 feet and I heard this bang. And it was so loud and so close to me, I guess, it sounded like it was really far away. And, you know, this is all happening in the space of a couple of seconds. And I, you know, just I remember thinking to myself, bang, and I turned around and I looked, and this fireball 
coming at me because the round had gone off right over the gas tank. Oh man! And right about and right about the time I'm thinking I need to get out of this truck, the blast hit me, and at that point, I mean, I didn't even realize the doors had been blown off the truck, the windshield had been blown out, and the blast blew me out of the uh, driver's side door. And um, I kind of I hit the pavement and kind of rolled down over this embankment. And uh, and I remember, you know, turning over on my side. And at this point, you know, my eardrums had both been perforated. And it was like, and it was like having the ocean or the wind was like blowing through my head. It was like all of this noise and static and whatever. And I remember watching the truck continue down the road, completely on fire at this point. Um, and, and in the book, uh, there's a picture of what the bed of that truck looked like after the round went off. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, uh, this truck is going to end up in a pad. It's going to blow up shit. And, <laughs> and right about that time, what they did for fire control in this ammo dump um, you didn't have regular fire trucks. They had pumpers. So there was a, a pond, a water pond, where they could fill up with water and then go and fight the fire. And right about that time, the truck veered off to the left and over the embankment and went into the pond which put out the fire. And, uh-huh. you know, and then I know that, you know, one of my teammates was kind of standing over me saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And that's the last thing I remember. Um, the next thing I knew was I woke up, you know, at the Medivac hospital. I, you know, had no memory of, you know, being Medivac or any of that other shit. And uh, I had uh, second-degree burns on my ears and the back of my neck and uh, uh, caught a lot of shrapnel in my shoulders and uh, my upper back. And what I didn't realize then, and, of course, they didn't even bother with x-rays, uh, that has become a real problem now is the most, the, the, the major uh, part of the blast is hit me in the lower back and really messed up my lumbar spine. And I'm now having a lot, a lot of trouble um, with my lumbar spine. Um, so, and uh, two or three days later, I went back to work. Oh, uh, really? And, uh, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, at that point, the only thing that was still really wrong with me was I was having a lot of trouble hearing. Um, one of my eardrums eventually healed over. The other one still has a perforation. Um, and then, well, a week after I got hurt in the dump, I got hurt a second time during an incoming attack. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's unreal. I mean, it's amazing uh, that you're still alive. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, if it hadn't been for that spare tire, I wouldn't be alive. No. no. That spare tire, you know, it, it absorbed a lot of the shrapnel and the blast and the fire and, you know, everything else, yeah. Well, smart move by you. I mean, that's when training kicks in. I mean, it's whether it was a, yeah. a planned well, thing, or you know, as far as thinking about the blast, but, you know, regardless of that, just amazing that, uh, you know, that's a, a razor-thin line between life and death sometimes in combat. When you look back exactly. on your, exactly. your 18 months in Vietnam, as you sit here today, all these years later, uh, how do you characterize the experience? Well, to be honest with you, it, it was 
maybe the best 18 months of my life. You know, really? Despite the danger, the danger and you know, possibilities of getting seriously wounded or killed. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that the men that I served with were just the best people, pretty much, that I've ever known in my whole life. Um, many of us are still alive. We get to see each other every year at our convention. And, uh, um, you know, I talk with these guys. We talk all the time by phone. Uh, you know, we Skype each other. Um, we have Zoom meetings. Um, it just, you know, and, you know, what's really uh, wonderful is when we get together, it's like, um, it's like things were 50 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if, you were just together the day before, even though it's been 40 something or 50 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can relate to that experience. Yeah. That's a, it's, a, it's, it's and, impressive. The bonds I, of, of soldiers. Yeah. And when I finally left in May of 1970, uh, March of 1970, I felt really guilty. Um, and I would have extended again, except that, uh, my control unit, uh, said that, uh, I had so much time in grades in E5, I had to go back to school for nuclear weapons. Um, otherwise, I would have stayed another six months. Wow. Um, let me ask you, uh, how do you feel? How did you feel back then, and how do you feel now about the way Vietnam veterans were treated once they returned home? Well, I never experienced a lot of the problems that so many of my brothers and sisters. I served the Vietnam experience, you know, people spitting on you and calling you baby killers and all that stuff. But I did run into some problems uh, with my first wife's brother and some of his friends who were all draft dodgers. Uh, and uh, I eventually pulled a gun on them. Wow. And told them if they, if they fuck with me again, I would fucking, you know, I would show them. And they never bothered me again after that. Um, but, um, you know, I went back to school and, um, was driving a cab full time at night and, uh, you know, and I was a, actually a fairly active member of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Um, I had met John Kerry, Ron Kovic, and, you know, a lot of the other guys who were, you know, in the, in the movement. And, um, uh, but, you know, I guess... You know, after, you know, a couple of years after getting out, um, you know, I was more concerned about getting a college education, and I had gotten married, and, you know, so, you know, I, a lot of the Vietnam stuff kind of fell by the wayside, and, uh, but I never, I never forgot um, that I was a Vietnam vet, and, uh, and frankly, you know, I was always proud of the fact that I had served. Um, and that I had served voluntarily. Um, so, yeah. When you see the way veterans are treated now, and it's this huge celebration, and there's all this appreciation and everything for veterans do now, comparatively knowing, you know, what kind of things happened to your generation, how does that make you feel? Is it angry? Does it bother you? Well, no, because the truth is, since the public has become so aware you know, people in the military and particularly veterans um, since 9-11, um, it has 
uh, allowed the public to recognize us and to treat us the same way. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, we just had a, where I live, um, is a kind of a ranching community. And, um, so on veterans day, uh, we dedicated an area here, uh, that's going to be a memorial to, uh, the military veterans and first responders. Um, we have, thanks to me, have become a purple heart community. Um, so there will be a, uh, a really nice plaque in this memorial area um, where there will be a lot of bricks uh, that people are buying, myself included. Um, my brick is going to be in, in memory of the 43 men we lost in Vietnam. Um, and uh, uh, so, um, and when I'm in the, like, say the grocery store, um, and, um, you know, I'm either, you know, I'm usually, you know, this time of year I'm wearing a, a jacket that I got from Wounded Wear. Uh, they're called something else now. Um, and I'll be wearing maybe um, an EOD hat or my Purple Heart hat or my Bronze Star with B device hat. And people stop me. They come up to me and they thank me for my service. And uh, it's really cool. And it's very humbling um, and, uh, and, and really different uh, than the way things were, you know, 20 years ago. How have you uh, been able to deal with all of your experience and everything else? I know you said you quit drinking, but um, obviously there's there's undiagnosed PTSD there from your time. Um, it, it's just undeniable. Oh, my my P, no, my PTSD is diagnosed. Oh, okay, it is. <laughs> well, they they weren't diagnosing well, been, it back then. I was diagnosed in, in nineteen ninety three. Really? Because yeah. that's not a term you really heard until the yeah, the, and- the GWAT. Pardon? You didn't really hear PTSD until after, you know, 9-11. Yeah, but I knew about it because, uh, first of all, um, I was been involved in the, in the veterans movement um, uh, in several different ways. Uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, Vietnam Veterans of America, of which I'm a founding member. Um, I was the second person accredited by the VA as a service officer for VBA in 1978. And I was general counsel of the Vietnam Veterans of Massachusetts. And so I knew about PTSD. I knew all of the major um, uh, mental health people who did the bulk of the research, Bob Lifton, uh, John Williams. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, John and I actually worked on a murder case together. Um, I, I was the investigator, and, uh, and he was the mental health guy that evaluated our client, who was a Marine Vietnam vet charge of murder in New Hampshire. Um, so uh, what happened was, I mean, I knew I had PTSD. And why I waited so long to go to the VA for help is, well, uh, something I just never don't understand. Um, and, and how that happened was my wife, my now wife, uh, one day, we were living in Michigan at the time, uh, got tired of me bitching about my knees. I had wrecked one of my knees uh, when I got hurt uh, in the ammo dump thing, and I wrecked the second one during the incoming attack. And uh, she said, get in the car, go to Battle Creek, and find out what the fuck is wrong with your knees. That's what I did. And uh, Good advice. So I, yeah, so I'm 
I'm talking to this orthopedics guy, and uh, you know he's looking at my records, and he says, "Oh, uh, you see, we got blown up." <laughs> I said, "Yeah," and he said, uh, he started asking me a bunch of questions, and then he said, "Well, look, I think you probably got post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm going to see if I can get you in to see a shrink." So I did. Um, I saw the shrink, and uh, and and after that. I, I filed my first claims, but I didn't even file a claim for PTSD. I filed claims for my knees, my tinnitus, hearing loss, um, and uh, uh, the injury to my left hand uh, from the incoming attack. I almost lost my thumb, and uh, it had basically been stitched back together. And I don't know, five or six months later, I get this huge envelope in the mail from the VA, and I open it up, and they just rated me for PTSD at 50%. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, and eventually my PTSD rating went to 70%. And then, uh, there was a, a period of time in, uh, 2004 and five, uh, right about the time I was re- retiring as a capital defense investigator. Um, I actually was rated at a hundred percent just for PTSD because I was really fucked up wow. and, uh, really depressed. And, uh, um, the work that I did as a capital defense investigator uh, meant, you know, for like 10 years, you know, having to go into these uh, murder crime scenes where there was fucking blood everywhere. And, uh, you know, we would end up after getting discovery from the state with hundreds of photographs uh, of the victim, you know, the body, blood, whatever. And uh, it just eventually got to the point where I knew after the last case that I did, I just, I couldn't keep doing that because it was really making me crazy. Um, You know, between the bad shit I saw in Vietnam and the bad shit I saw during these, uh, whatever, nine or ten capital cases I worked on, uh, yeah, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I retired in 2005. Unreal. I mean, just a uh, incredible and a testament to your will and fortitude that you know you're still here, still going on, and um, still living your life to the best that you can, given everything that you've experienced both yeah. in, in Vietnam and as I a mean, civilian. Yeah, I mean, eventually, uh, I am retired. Uh, well, what happened was in 2005, myself and eight other Vietnam vets got together and we started an organization called Central Oregon Veterans Out. And I was doing VA claims, and what we were doing is we were providing services to veterans that were in the dozens of homeless camps um, in the woods and out in the desert here in Central Oregon. Um, We were uh, stockpiling uh, things like firewood, um, winter clothing, sleeping bags, tents, uh, propane tanks, and food. We were getting MREs from the National Guard that, uh, you know, that had expired based on their whatever it is. But, you know, those things never expire. I mean, when I was in Afghanistan, I was eating MREs for like 15 years old. So, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and then eventually, um, Central Oregon Investors Outreach at Kobo, um, I wrote a grant. Uh, uh, for HUD money, and the city of Bend ended up, ended up giving us a half a million dollars. 
and we used that money to buy our first real estate property, which became the transitional housing program, where we would get these homeless vets off the street or out of the woods and into the house and get them the services that they needed and uh, try to get them to the point where they could go back into civilian life, you know, with a job skills and, you know, an education. And, you know, I would get them rated by the VA for whatever problems they were having. Um, until the point when, um, you know, Kobo is now a, a real estate behemoth. Um, they own property all over central Oregon. Um, they have, you know, housing uh, for vets. Uh, and they have one uh, uh, project. Uh, I think it's a triplex. That's for single women vets who have kids. And uh, so, in, you know, I, this is what I was doing. And in 2007, I... Uh, uh, got called by an attorney who had just been appointed uh, to take a look at the conviction of the first kid, a uh, 15-year-old kid, that had been sentenced under this draconian Oregon law called Measure 11, which allowed uh, 15, 16, 17-year-olds to be tried as adults. And this was the first kid to be sentenced to life in prison under this law. Wow. And, uh, so I unretired. And I did the investigation on this case and ended up learning that this kid's lawyer and his investigators had done absolutely nothing. They lied about the hours they had put in. They lied about, you know, witnesses they claimed they had interviewed because I went out and actually interviewed the 50 or 60 or however many witnesses that were involved in this case. None of them knew what I was talking about when I asked them, well, what did you tell the other investigators? And they said, what other investigators? So we ended up uh, the, the conviction was overturned on the basis of professional negligence, and uh, the kid was offered a deal to manslaughter. We took it, and he was free. And I retired again. <laughs> and then in 2009, I had a call from a buddy of mine who was running this counter-narcotics program for the U.N. in Afghanistan, and he asked me to come to Afghanistan. So I went to Afghanistan. It's unreal. It's amazing. Uh, just what a trajectory then, and what a path. And then I retired again. I retired again, yeah. <laughs> Setting a pattern here. Um, maybe you should stop well, retiring. My wife, <laughs> yeah, my wife said. My wife said that's it. Um, I actually was going to take another ninety-day contract, and uh, but we had run into some really serious shit in the last month I was there. Um, um, now, what I was doing is um, I was an advisor uh, along with my other teammates to a brigade of the Afghan border police. Um, uh, based outside of Herat, up in the northwest corner, about 100 clicks uh, from the border crossing into Iran at Islam Kalah. And uh, we taught uh, classes to the NCO cadets and the command staff. And I taught courses in IEDs, ordnance identification, and tactical convoy movement. And then we would help them develop and tell that we got from local people and plan interdiction operations. And then we would go with it. We would run these interdiction operations, mostly along the Iranian border. Wow. Well, still, listen, I mean, what an amazing uh, tale, what an amazing, you know, story and just everything that you've done, everything that you've been through. Um, it's a testament that you're still here and um, still willing to, to do your part and you're, you're in the fight. And well, now that you're officially, officially retired, but still, it's just uh, yeah. to watch you go back over and over again to help out in any way you can is, is certainly commendable. And we certainly appreciate you sharing your story. Well, thanks. Stu Steinberg, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast.
All right. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.